Um, oh, that's so if characters from Frozen were <laughs> basketball players, who would be Olaf? Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. If you're just joining us, this is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is June 11th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined, as always, in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you doing after that late night of live blogging and watching basketball and then editing basketball? It's just... It's, it's, it's all basketball. We don't all sleep. Basketball all the time. We no. consume basketball. No, no, I don't eat either. I just we, watch. Basketball we literally games. eat, sleep, yeah. and drink basketball. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's great for my well being. We're, we're yeah. like a twelve year old gym rat, but <laughs> in journalist form. Yeah, absolutely. And on the line from Los Angeles is five thirty eight sports editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? Late night. <laughs> we were talking at two a.m. Eastern. Yeah, we we were. We I were, know. Yeah, Neil wasn't super happy about that. <laughs> I got, despite somehow, despite iPhone being on, uh, you know, uh, sleep mode or whatever, snooze mode, I still got those notifications. Yeah, so we appreciate to, it, guys. We need to figure out your Slack good, situation good and why it's waking you up. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, sorry about that. So aside from the NBA Finals, it's been a busy week because sports never stops. Uh, Belmont, there was a horse race. Jeff. I can't believe we're talking about this. I mean, with everything going on. We have to. Now it's in, it's required. Has this become a horse racing podcast? Yes, this is now a horse racing podcast. I watched it for the record. I watched the race. I'm back, guys. I'm back. Did you bet on it, though? Yeah, lost. Woo! Lost all <laughs> so my money. So you really back. are back. You are back in form. <laughs> Wait, did you bet on the the favorite? I, I you know, I had a, a couple, you know, exactas boxed up. You know, it was it wasn't as simple as betting on the favorite. I don't know but, what those um, words mean. <laughs> he's saying words that we don't understand. And <laughs> yeah. so you know what an exacta really is? It's first and second place, and then if you box it, you get both permutations. It's pretty simple. But I did a three-horse box, so I had all permutations of first and second with the three horses. And and by the way, only one of those horses was relevant in the race, so I lost. Have you considered like taking a $20 bill out of your wallet and like setting, setting it on, it on fire? fire? Would that Ridiculous. maybe be more fun? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Not that bad. Yeah. So Sir Winston was was the winner. And it was a long shot, right? A 10, 10 to 1? 1, yeah. Is that yeah. long? I don't know. They didn't have much. I mean, I'm telling you, they, I, was, I, I have a friend who was there who was putting in my bets, and he said the crowd was sparse for that event. That probably signals to us that maybe we shouldn't be talking about it and be <laughs> talking about one of these other many exciting sporting events that are going on right now across okay, that's the fair. world. But I did want to talk about Formula One and its my horse sport. race. Not that. Horse. That's not what I was referring to. <laughs> Uh, and it's horse race esque ending on Sunday. Yeah, that's right. So Sebastian Vettel of Ferrari finished uh, the race first. Uh, he crossed the finish line first, at least, and then uh, because of a five second penalty, highly controversial <laughs> penalty, he didn't end up winning the race. Uh, he he turned his car and sort of blocked Lewis Hamilton from taking the uh, the racing line, uh, and so it was remarkably similar to uh, to the Kentucky Derby in which a horse blocked another horse and ended up having the the win revoked. But I 
don't know if after the Kentucky Derby, uh, the horse picked up the uh, sign that said first place and swapped it with the one that said second place because Sebastian Vettel did that in a fit of peak after uh, being being told that he had lost the race. I want horses to be as petty as humans, at least human drivers uh, in Formula One. Horses are just so pure of heart. They can never <laughs> be that way. And few athletes, I think, are more petty than Formula One drivers, especially the ones at the top of the table, uh, as they would call it. I mean, it's it's shocking the, the egos that these guys have. It's wonderful. That's what makes the sport so much fun. I want the next F1 race to play out like the Preakness <laughs> and the driver to eject right at the beginning and the car drives itself. That happened a lot in the 70s and a lot of people died. <laughs> How did that happen in the 70s, Neil? <laughs> Just like a lot of people were ejected from Formula One cars and they caught on fire and things blew up and there were a lot of deaths. Oh, boy. Things got grim. Anyway, that's all for Hot Takedown, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Been a great show. Also this weekend, the French Open was um, completely predictable. On the women's side, Ashley Barty, a first-time winner, won. And on the men's side... Nadal won again for the millionth time, and everyone knew that was coming. Both both outcomes, completely predictable. As we mentioned last week. Yeah, yeah. Here's my question, which we've, I think, brought up in past stories. Is any athlete better at any one thing than Nadal is at the French Open? I, I don't think so, right? And possibly ever. I can't think of it. It's a pretty great thing to be great at, too. Like, I'm really good at fixing commas and sentences. And that is, you know, not nearly as cool as being really great at playing tennis on clay. Debatable. Yeah, I can only think of, like, (laughs) you know, certain players who are, like, really good at free throws, but they're not necessarily, like, uh, maybe not even basketball players, but, like, those, like, 80-year-old men that set the Guinness record for shooting free throws uh, consecutively. They're really good at free throw shooting, but unfortunately there's so much more to basketball than that that (laughs) as an 80-year-old you can't play. So it's nice of tennis to have an entire surface that someone can dominate and have that be one quarter of the Grand Slams. That's so nice of them. The the only thing I can think of would be maybe like a Katie Ledecky or Michael Phelps at their best race. You could argue. I mean, the problem is they only play, you know, I mean... That's once every four years on the Olympic stage, so you don't get as much volume. But if Michael Phelps was doing the Olympics every year and winning gold at whatever his best stroke is, 100 butterfly. You know they keep swimming between the Olympics. I know, but I'm saying, you know, from my stand, from my purview, it's really mostly about the Olympics. I'm sorry, you know. Can't keep track of everything. <laughs> uh, now let's talk about Formula One and horse racing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we did swimming. bigger than that bigger than all of those this weekend the women's world cup finally started which is so exciting the american women will have played their first game today by the time people hear this um but we are still very much looking forward to it the only surprises so far have been italy beating australia and the draw between argentina and japan so we'll see how the the u.s women do as they start their journey today 17% 17% chance of them winning the World Cup as of Tuesday Ooh. morning. So it's down a little bit, probably from France right. dominating its first yeah. game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We'll have to watch that as we go. Okay. Well, on today's show, we will, of course, discuss an exciting Game 5 of the NBA playoffs. We'll catch up with the Stanley Cup final as it heads into a Game 7. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. 
We'll start off with the NBA Finals. On Monday night, the Toronto Raptors had the opportunity to clinch their first NBA championship at home, but they fell short by one point, losing to Golden State 106-105. Kevin Durant returned for the Warriors, but he injured his Achilles tendon early in the second quarter and left the arena on crutches. This pivotal win for the Warriors took on a somber tone. In his post-game interview, Warriors coach Steve Kerr summarized the night's events. On the one hand, I'm so proud of them, uh, just the amazing heart and grit that they showed. And on the other, I'm just devastated for for Kevin. And so it's it's, it's a bizarre feeling that we all have right now. An incredible win and um, a horrible loss at the same time. Before we talk about the Warriors' incredible win, let's grapple with the loss. Neil, you wrote about Durant's injury this morning. What exactly happened? Yeah, so Durant, uh, he played a great uh, first quarter. I think he had, what, 11 points or something in the first, and the Warriors were looking like the Warriors of old. The, they had a lot more pace to themselves. They were sort of more playing more fluidly. Uh, and then very early in the second quarter, uh, Durant tried to make a move on his old teammate, Serge Ibaka, and he just sort of you know, crumpled in a heap uh, and and grabbed his leg, his right leg. And of course, his right calf had been what the previous injury that had kept him out of 32 days of action, but only nine games, as Jeff pointed out in our live blog, because the NBA schedule is ridiculous in the playoffs. He went back to the locker room instantly. There was an incident where the Toronto fans actually cheered his injury, which the Raptor players had to sort of say, like, don't do this, guys. Uh, and so that was kind of an ugly mark on the incident. Durant went back to locker room, very somber atmosphere. Doris Burke eventually reported that Durant was leaving the arena. He had crutches. He had a walking boot on. And then after the game, the Warriors front office confirmed that they basically think, barring some kind of unexpected outcome from an MRI on Tuesday, that Durant tore his Achilles tendon and that he's out not just for the series, but just, you know, indefinitely this injury takes about nine to 12 months to recover from. So we might not see Durant all of next season, uh, which is especially notable because Durant was going to headline this class of amazing free agents that were coming up over the season. And there were all these questions of whether he would come back to Golden State. Would he try to win somewhere else like the Knicks uh, or somewhere like that? Uh, and so now it's sort of been turned on its head because of this long-term injury that he suffered. I still don't understand. So he injured his calf against the Rockets, but this isn't connected? It is. Con- Do we know whether this is connected? I, we don't know. I mean, it's it's just from like a logical perspective from someone who has literally no medical uh, expertise, such as myself. It seems <laughs> a little uh, difficult to believe that they're not connected at all, that he would have this right leg, lower leg injury, uh, and then literally 12 minutes into returning from that lower right leg injury, he would have another lower right leg injury that was just completely random by chance that had nothing to do with the previous one. But, you know, they are two different parts of the body that that were injured, two different aspects uh, of the leg. And, you know, Golden State's training staff cleared him to play. I think this was reported by Rachel Nichols after the game that they told him that he shouldn't be able to hurt himself anymore with regard to the calf injury by playing on it in game five. So uh, it sounds like the Warriors, for their belief, was that the the calf injury was sort of something that maybe it would have an ongoing effect on his ability to stay out on the court for a long time or his burst or whatever, but that the risk of injury was low. I, I, I feel like they have to be related. I mean, come on. I mean, he's clutching the same part of his leg 
both times the same leg, and they were actually kind of similar, you know, non-contact injuries. I mean, and also, we have to be skeptical and dubious of what, like, anything the Warriors and their training staff says at this point. I mean, because, you know, the information has been obviously unreliable and they've been kind of cagey you know for the whole finals i mean for decent reason i mean there's a lot going on i mean this affects how they prepare how the raptors prepare so i mean i I get it yeah i think it's especially difficult for us to understand because so many of us thought that he had torn his achilles the first time the way he stopped the way he looked back behind him to see if someone had kicked him which is very typical when people do tear their achilles so I, i mean i'm not surprised that there are so many People this morning saying, you know, Durant should have never been allowed to play. He should have, you know, this was a mistake. Yeah. And, you know, if if it was related to the previous injury and was caused by having him come back too soon, that opens up a lot of questions, uh, you know, about the way the Warriors manage players coming back from injury and, you know, how they will treat players going forward which might be pertinent for a player like Kevin Durant, who's trying to decide whether to come back to the Warriors. The Warriors certainly had a lot of incentive in the short term to play him because there was no tomorrow for them. And he did end up saving their season in a, in a weird kind of way. They were, uh, the Warriors were plus six during the time that Durant was on the court and they were minus five in all of the other minutes. And that includes the minutes that Curry and Clay hit those big shots down the stretch of the game. So I think you could say that, you know, they made this gamble to have Durant come back in sort of like it's now or never. We have this ultimate weapon. He might be good to go and there's some risk that he could be injured, but let's just see what happens. That would be a highly irresponsible um, approach to take, but I, you can see why people are sort of thinking that that might have been their mindset going in. Yeah, I, I have a hard time believing that this Warriors team that's won three of the past four finals would be like, eh, we don't really care about your long-term health, like and the well-being of you as a person. We're just going to throw you out on the court. I, I th- feel like there has to be either they didn't know the true nature of the initial injury, or Durant really pushed to get back out. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine they. And would you know risk that was health, true. I sure. mean, that Durant had wanted to play. I think you know, two games ago, uh, and he just wasn't cleared to practice right. and, and they wouldn't let him go out uh, on the court. So, I mean, co- managing players' injuries is a huge part of the modern NBA, and it's also really hard. Right. Oh, I've, I, I have to imagine it's it's almost impossible. And I know there's there are questions also about the Warriors because they have a new – they have new training staff that than they had had over the past several years, and and that's always um, always tricky too. But I can't imagine that they would have risked his health just to win this game. Well, in addition to Coach Kerr, Warriors GM Bob Myers, Steph Curry, Draymond Green, and Clay Thompson were all pretty shaken up after Durant's injury. Steph and Andre Iguodala walked Durant back to the locker room while play continued. Thompson was particularly outspoken during his own post-game press conference. Those talking heads who say we're better without him, that's just ludicrous. Like, that's crazy. This is the best player in the world. You could put him on the 30th best team in the league, and that's, that team will make the playoffs. That's how talented he is. So we don't even pay any of that, no mind, because with him we are really one of the, I believe, one of the greatest teams to ever play. Without him, we're a really good team, but you throw Kevin Durant out there, like I said before, one of the greatest ever. We don't pay that any attention because that's just stupid. 
stupid because he's, he's a warrior. You saw what he did tonight. He sacrificed his health for us. We dearly miss him. It was very deflated to see him go out. I, I'm just going to pray for the guy, and I know he'll be back even stronger. So that notion of the Warriors being better without Durant is pretty ridiculous now, right? We can all agree on that, that it's pretty clear. It was always ridiculous. For sure. I mean, it's a, it, it never made any sense. It never made any sense. We're actually way better without this amazing player. I mean, it just doesn't, you know, I mean, it, it, people were looking at small sample size and just extrapolating, you know, so I never bought into that. What he did was, you know, borderline heroic, especially on the brink of free agency. And, you know, there's a lot to lose. You know, there's a, a huge amount of money to lose um, if you care about such things. I mean, I will say with the Raptors fans booing, I, I sort of immediately was repulsed. But then I kind of Nate started talking and then in the uh, live blog about how you get wrapped up in emotions and, you know, you you're not really thinking and then i started thinking about some of the things i might have done at games that (laughs) jets games Uh where you know maybe i might have yelled a couple inappropriate things so you know i i forgive them i i can relate relate. people do dumb things when they're when they're in that um environment I, i saw so much like breathless talk about how Toronto no longer deserves this championship because of the way they reacted in the second. I mean, come on, let's let's get over it. I think they should have been rooting. Uh, they they should have been rooting for him to get back up and give them their best shot because I do think that in conjunction with uh, the way that the Warriors played when Durant was on the court, uh, outscoring the Raptors, and the way that the Warriors haven't quite looked like themselves for the majority of this series otherwise, uh, and the fact that if you look at Durant since this Warriors run started, when they have Durant in the lineup, and it's a little bit of a misleading stat because last night does count toward this, even though he missed the majority of the game, but the Warriors are 9-1 and one when they have Durant in an NBA Finals game under Steve Kerr, and they're only 8-9 and nine when they don't have Durant in a Finals game uh, over the same span. First of all, I think that says a lot for Durant's legacy, which a lot of people have questioned because of leaving Oklahoma City to go to the team that won 73 games and knocked Oklahoma City out of the playoffs uh, back in 2016. This Warriors team, I think it's clearer than ever that they do need him uh, to, to play at their best. But also, the Raptors, if they do win this series under the cloud of Durant being out now for the rest of the the series and for all but 12 minutes of the series you know i don't know what the what the response will be historically to the raptors winning the championship will we look at it and be like that was a weird one-off thing that they benefited they got lucky from you know one of the best players in the game being absent from the Warriors. but when we saw what durant could do when he was on the Warriors. It seems possible to extrapolate that the Warriors would have won this series, perhaps not all that, uh, you know, with not all that much difficulty, maybe similar to some of the Cleveland series the past few years, if Durant had been on the court for the Warriors. So in some ways, you know, it's kind of a weird question. Would you rather root for a player to give you their best shot but risk potentially losing the NBA Finals as a result? Or would you rather win the NBA Finals uh, but do it under this, you know, kind of extenuating asterisk circumstance? You'd probably want to win no matter what either way because people forget the extenuating circumstances over time. Uh, But it does sort of beg the question of 
when we look back at this series, people will mention that, yeah, maybe it would have been a lot different if Kevin Durant had been on the court. I like that your objection to the cheering over the injury is strategic, not about politeness. Well, no, the politeness <laughs> you're like, is, no, you're speaks for the, itself, It's the wrong Sarah. thing, guys. You have to really <laughs> process all that very quickly in the moment. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is, like, Steph and Clay and Draymond all played great yesterday. That's really the first time that's happened in this series. I mean, Curry's obviously had good games, but those guys were all at the, the peak of their powers. And that core is a proven championship core. The steroided Durant version is just almost, like, borderline unfair. I, I don't think anyone should knock the Raptors. I mean, the Raptors are not beating, like, a bad team. I mean, even, like, you look back when the Cavs lost Love and uh, Kyrie, and it was basically just LeBron and a couple other guys. That team was more crippled than, than this team, and I don't think anyone knocked. Yeah, and we don't yeah, discount. Yeah, no one discounts. LeBron and Matthew Dellavedova. Yeah, them against the world, <laughs> or at least against the Warriors. And, yeah, you can just look at how the Warriors played in the finals the past two years with Kevin Durant and how easy that was and like know that you know for for all the talk yes you know Kyrie and Kevin Love were injured in 2015 but the 2015 and 16 finals against the Cavs were a cutthroat battle uh, you know the one of which the Warriors lost and then you know they had Kevin Durant and it's like oh yeah this is super easy now so I, I don't know that there was any legitimate you know, way to frame it that would say that Durant was like somehow not good for the Warriors. Yeah. Completely unrelated to Durant. Can you think of an NBA game where this sort of second order infractions, the misdemeanors, the sort of the, the, the reaches of the rule book came into play where we're talking about basically goaltending on Offensive goaltending, defensive goaltending, backcourt violations. I mean, it was a sort of strange game, what was happening. There was a moving screen moving screen in an I mean, NBA game. All within I the last couple minutes that over. came into play. Yeah, I was more shocked. Yeah, the backcourt violation. You yeah. can go like whole game, many, many games without seeing that happen like once. And it happened twice to the Warriors in, in like the span of what, 15 minutes or something like that? Like yeah. it, it was really shocking to see. But that speaks a lot to like, the Warriors can be pretty careless, I think. They're good enough to get away with it a lot of the time, but some of those like mental mistakes and, and some of the ticky-tack stuff down the stretch almost cost them, really, this whole, the whole season. The Warriors led for most of the game until the fourth quarter. The Raptors made their comeback. Neil, what were the Warriors doing right up until that point, and then what started to click into place for the Raptors? Well, I mean, the Warriors just were in control for... Yeah, the majority of the game, and they were executing better on offense, but also they were benefiting from a lot of missed open shots on defense, where Toronto just inexplicably bricked a bunch of threes in the game. And so that's not necessarily something that you can control. There's actually a lot of um, research out there that shows that opponent three-point percentage is one of the noisiest stats in all of basketball. Uh, and it, it, the Raptors ended up going 8 for 32 in the game, which was 25%, but actually a vast improvement over how they sort of started the game. But I think that that was sort of the key to uh, the Warriors in this game was they slowed down Toronto's offense just a little bit, maybe through some luck, and, and, and they themselves executed better. And 
even then, Kawhi Leonard sort of showed that when you have one of these transcendent players that can seemingly sort of bend the game to his will uh, down the stretch of a game, you can play great for uh, 43 minutes, and then all of a sudden in the last five minutes, things can kind of start to slip away from you. But also... As we've seen time and again with the Warriors, Curry and Clay Thompson are just capable of making shots under the most ridiculous amount of duress and making it look easy. Just, you know, no rim at all. They didn't need those soft Toronto <laughs> rims uh, on, on those shots down the stretch. Kawhi also overshadowed by his unbelievable sort of close to the game. He, he was well on his way to having his worst game of the series, let alone maybe even the playoffs. I mean, he he was not effective, at least offensively, for most of the game. So that was a factor. I mean, if he's not playing his best game and the uh, the three, you know, sort of big stars, Durant aside, on, on Golden State are all sort of playing well and hitting shots, then, I mean, that sort of explains why they were even in that situation to begin with compared to the previous four games. Well, so at the end of the game, Kawhi went on essentially a 10-2 to 2 run on his own, and he put the Raptors up six with just under three minutes to play. And then Toronto coach Nick Nurse called a timeout. After that, the Splash Brothers hit back-to-back threes, and the Warriors were able to hold on. Nurse was criticized pretty heavily after the game for essentially stopping his own team's momentum. Jeff, was that criticism justified? 538, don't we have a long-standing policy that's in our uh, employee handbook about uh, momentum? Yeah, that and the hot hand, uh, clutch. We do not recognize momentum as a thing um, in this office. Um, So I I don't like to read too much into that. I mean, I think... You know, if anything, there were two really, really bad possessions towards the end for Toronto. I mean, actually three, if you count the last possession, which was not great by any means, too. But there was, you know, the uh, shot clock violation or backcourt violation, whatever that was on the sort of second to last. And then there was the one prior Kawhi kind of really forced a shot uh, with like three guys in his face sort of falling backwards. Um, and then, of course, the last possession. That last possession with Lowry taking a three when they were up by one. Should Kawhi have had the ball there? What what should they have done there? Well, he did have the ball. They just threw a bunch of defenders in his face knowing, like everyone in the whole building knew that Kawhi was going to try to take that final shot. And that's what he's been doing all postseason long. Just ask the Sixers how that felt. In that particular case, they forced him to basically pass it away. And then Draymond Green did a great job contesting Lowry's potential championship clenching three uh, I mean it does sort of beg the question of why when they're down by one they didn't try to get a two uh, or have some kind of backup plan to try to get a two with like Siakam or someone like that uh, if if well, Kawhi can't get the shot right exactly because we've seen those guys knifing their way to the <laughs> yeah. basket time and again uh, on what has been kind of a uh, a weak interior defense that Golden State has sort of chosen to play uh, because of the offensive benefits at the other end. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, Kyle Lowry shooting a contested three in the corner is maybe like if you had to draw up the preferential list of things that you would want to have happen on that possession if you're Toronto, does that crack the top 20, the top 50? I don't know. I just, it drives me absolutely out of my mind when they when teams don't drive the ball so many good things happen in the lane like you can you can make a layup for one thing or you get fouled you can get fouled like get in there and make make the defense make a play make the refs make a call like do that don't 
Don't now take us really easy for us to say I mean, sitting here after the fact. Sure. <laughs> it's it's almost like you will get you will get fouled. Just hope the refs call it or your shot goes in. Yeah, I just I just don't think that was quite the quite the shot they wanted there at the end. So we're going into we're going back to Oracle Arena for game six on Thursday. The Warriors can't possibly lose all three of their home games in this series. Can can they? Uh, it seems unlikely. Uh, right now, we have the Warriors as a 57% favorite in that game, uh, in Game 6 at home, and that's after accounting for Durant now being ruled out for the rest of the series. What do we have the series at? 82% Toronto. Yeah. Which it dropped into the 70s before we adjusted for Durant's um, mm-hmm. injury. Uh, so, I mean, I think this is still... Uh, we've been as always, higher on the Raptors than, say, like Vegas or um, some of these other predictors have been. So I don't know. 82% with a chance to you just have to win one of the next two games, one of which is at home. It sounds about right to me, uh, especially with the Warriors missing uh, Durant. But, you know, it would also not surprise me at all if the Raptors managed to piss this away, the 3-1 lead. All right, who's going to win? Who's going to win Thursday? Who's going to win the series? I think the Warriors win Thursday, but okay. I think the Raptors win Game 7 at home. Yeah, you're all about the winning at home. I think the Raptors clinch next game. What did I predict before the series? I, I have no memory. I, I don't even know what team. I, I think you said Raptors in 7. We've all made lots of predictions this playoffs. <laughs> which, which Who can remember? <laughs> our wonderful producer, Grace, will probably compile yeah, at yeah, the yeah. end of the series <laughs> and uh, shame us with. Oh, boy. I'm going to be absent that day. I have to be honest here because, uh, or transparent, I I would have gloated pretty heavily had the Raptors won last night. Uh-huh. Because I did make what, what was called by one of my co-hosts a very aggressive pick of Toronto's in five. Who Which one that? of us said that? You 100% Who? said that, Jeff. Oh, I said that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like something I might have said. Look, you wouldn't have needed to gloat. I would have given you many... Many accolades for that. We like to set uh, injured players at like a percentage of their full strength for, uh, in our model. Uh, what percentage of the full Raptors in five accolades will you get if the Raptors win in six? I mean, like I think 70, a lot, right? 80? I think 70% of the accolades. That sounds right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's leave that there. Before we move on, let's have a word from one of this week's sponsors, Upstart.com. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, but getting out is hard, especially if your FICO score isn't great. Thankfully, now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score. It offers the smartest interest rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. Upstart goes beyond the traditional FICO score when assessing your credit worthiness and actually rewards you based on your education and job history in the form of a smarter interest rate. With Upstart, it is fast, simple, and easy to check your rate in just a few minutes without affecting your credit score. More than 200,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards and student loans. The best part? Once a loan is improved, most people get their funds the very next business day. See why Upstart is ranked number one in their category with more than 300 businesses on Trustpilot. And hurry to upstart.com slash takedown to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes, and it won't affect your credit. That's upstart.com slash takedown. Let's move on to hockey. 
The Stanley Cup final is nearing a dramatic close. The Boston Bruins won Game 6 to tie the series 3-3 and send it back to Boston for Game 7 on Wednesday night. The St. Louis Blues are still in pursuit of the team's first Stanley Cup title. Here's their coach, Craig Berube, discussing the team's mindset heading into Game 7. Listen, if you told me four months ago we were going to be in the finals of Game 7, I think I'd take it. <laughs> We've been a good road team. We've won twice up there in this series, so we're, we're a confident group. Guys, should the Blues be as confident as Berube sounded? Well, I, I don't know if they should be confident. I will say that home ice is not really that huge of a factor in the NHL. I, I don't think, you know, it's the same as the NBA or the NFL or, you know, really most sports. Um, that being said, in Game 7s of the Finals, the home team is 12-4. and four. Okay, so that's bad evidence to present after that opening statement by me. But the last two, um, of course, went to the road team, the Bruins themselves, winning 11, um, Game 7 in Vancouver and, and the Penguins in 09. But then before that, there was a, really a bunch in a row who won the Game 7 at home, the Canes in 06, that, uh, the Lightning in 04, the Devils in 03, the Avalanche in 2001. First of all, by the way, a lot of Game 7s in the finals in that stretch. That's that's the golden uh, years of NHL hockey. And then, you know, the Rangers in 94 and so on and so on. But, you know, I, I think largely hockey is pretty random. I think it comes down often to some sort of strange bounces of the puck. And I, I think if you look at what how St. Louis has played, to me, they look like the better team. They've been pretty much dominating. Even watching that last game at home, which was sort of by the way, oddly similar to the uh, the Raptors scenario where they had a chance to win their first title at home and everyone sort of expected it and it was disappointing. Um, it, it expected it to the extent that the uh, St. Louis local newspaper printed a yes. congratulatory <laughs> letter to the Blues before they won. Uh, that's that's just bad karma. <laughs> I think, you know, they've been the better team all series. Um, I think they don't where they've been losing is really in the goaltending and in the special teams. I mean, the Bruins' power play has been very good. The Blues' power play has been really almost non-existent. Um, but in terms of, like, controlling the play, I mean, I was sort of, you know, it was one nothing going into the third period. I would, it, it felt to me like St. Louis was going to put one in and, and then win the game. So, um, you know, we'll see how their goalie bounces back. I mean, he's done this already in the series, having a really bad game and then coming back and being great. Tuka Rask has been awesome. I mean, he's like a clear Conn Smythe winner if, Bo- if Boston wins. But I will say to this, to Sarah, who's not the biggest fan of the NHL. I mean, she's an NHL fan, but not the biggest NHL fan. Watch Game 7 of the finals. It is always pretty awesome. I, I was watching Game 6. I, I'll be watching. And did you like it? Do we have? Are you converting? I mean, are you coming around? You know, there were people on ice skates. It was it was a thing. There were people on ice I, skates. I've, I've slacked to uh, my friend Neil here. I'm watching hockey. Send help. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't send help. No, nobody sent me help. Uh, so Neil, what's the argument for Boston here? Well, you know, despite I, Jeff is right about the the kind of weirdly non-value of having a, uh, a home game in the NHL playoffs. It's it's definitely the least home court advantageous sport uh, of all the ones that we look at. But at the same time, in Game 7s for the Stanley Cup Final, uh, the home team all-time is 12-4 and four, uh, in that. And I think that's playing a big role in why Vegas thinks Boston is a... You know, not uh, insignificant favorite to win this game. Uh, I think 
uh, Jeff alluded to this, uh, which I don't know why he would do because he's arguing for St. Louis, but Boston has a significant edge in goaltending. Tuka Rask um, has been, you know, playing amazing all playoffs long, and he still has a 925 save percentage in this series. Uh, the Bruins have outscored the the Blues in the series. Some of that obviously owes to the big blowout in in game 6. It was 5 to 1. Without scoring them 21 to 14 as a team uh, over the course of the whole series, uh, they also are out shooting them 179 to 174. The Bruins have an exceptional amount of scoring depth. In fact, they have uh, tied the record for most uh, goal scores just in general in a single postseason in the history of hockey. 21 different Bruins have scored at least one goal, and they're looking to add on to their already existing lead in the category of having most multi-goal scores in a single postseason. 19 different Bruins, including Zdeno Chara, who had a big goal in uh game six have scored at least two goals in uh the playoffs so far which is easily the record it beats the the 93 kings the 1987 flyers and the 1988 boston bruins uh who each had 16 different uh players score two or more goals in their postseason runs uh so I mean, and we talked about this going into, uh, I think it was into the, what, it was the conference finals or into the Stanley Cup finals, that the Bruins looked like the better team Mm -hmm. all season long. The Blues fired their coach in the middle of the season. They were really on the outside of the playoff picture for the majority of of the regular season. Uh, And the Bruins are the better team. I mean, all of the indicators sort of point to no matter whether you look at scoring, goaltending, consistency throughout the year, game seven being played at home, it would be an upset if the Bruins lost uh, the Stanley Cup. And it's a shame because I have been rooting for the Blues. I like to see new teams, weird teams, you know, win their first championship uh, and to kind of join that club. And that's why I was rooting for the Raptors, too. I I like to see, you know, new entries into the championship club. But it's uh, more likely than not that, yes, Boston, who is in dire need of a championship... (laughs) It's been what, like uh, five whole months, uh, less than that, four whole months since they've won a championship. Dark, dark days, dark days for them. So uh, they they seem more likely than not to add another one onto their tally. Yay! <laughs> another factor which is going for the Bruins is experience. I mean, this is remarkable. Ch- Sedano Charles played in thirteen game sevens. Yeah, that's this, insane. He'll set the record when he plays. Wednesday. Bergeron's played in 11 and Rask has played in a few and like there's really no one on on St. Louis who even compares remotely to that. I, again, if I'm arguing for the Blues, I'm not sure why I'm bringing this up. But uh, I mean, Boston is favored 64% to 36% in uh, betting markets. We can't have another Boston title. I mean, St. Louis has to get this done. Please. I want to take one second. You brought up, Neil, the um, St. Louis Post-Dispatch that printed accidentally early a congratulatory ad. I, I want to take a second to defend newspapers because I totally understand how this happened. So it wasn't that they actually printed anything. They had their electronic edition. So, you know, all these pages are, um, are, are digital before they're printed. And so they had that up because it goes early to subscribers. You can see the next day's um, paper before it's actually out. And so they had those ads in there, 
before before the game six even started. So it wasn't like it wasn't they were they were really jumping the gun. Although they just, really should have been revoked like not long into that game six well, based on the way that you know, that went. <laughs> that's you know, there wasn't the pylon wasn't till the end of the game. So, you know, by that point it was too late. The the cat was out of the bag. But I do totally understand how that happens and it wasn't it wasn't so much a mistake. It was just I mean, they obviously swapped out the ads. The ads didn't get printed. This is the the reality. See, it's just another digital problem for newspapers. Yeah. So. But but if you're I mean, if you were on the blues, you gotta be like, Come on, do you need to give <laughs> yeah, them the ultimate stop. like Jigsy nuts. That's literal bulletin board material. They can right. cut it out of the paper and stick it up on the on the bulletin board. No no printing required. Well also it's it's it is, as a former newspaper woman myself, it is also bad form. This would happen all the time where a team would be ahead and we would come up with the perfect headline for that team's victory and and that meant immediately they would lose. The moment you put that on a page, you are definitely making more work for yourself. So just, you know, have it have it ready, but don't actually commit it to the page until it's until the game is over. That's my advice to the St. Louis Post Dispatch. I'm sure they're listening. All right, let's leave that there. Let's pause to hear from this week's other sponsor, ExxonMobil. Plants capture CO2. What if we could help industrial plants capture it too? Think how we could help lower emissions. More and more scientists think carbon capture is key to reducing CO2 emissions globally. It's one way that ExxonMobil is helping industrial plants be more like plants. That's the unexpected energy of ExxonMobil. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, I will start us off. So I'm going to talk about the team nearest and dearest to my heart, the Minnesota Twins. Baseball is probably my favorite sport. I love it partially because it just kind of ebbs and flows. As they say, just about every team will win a third of its games and lose a third of its games. What matters is what you do with that other third, which is why it's so delightful for me that the Twins have played 64 games so far. They've lost 21 of them, almost exactly a third. So they've won the third they were supposed to win. And then they also won another third on top of that so far. It's amazing. (laughs) The Twins have the best run differential in baseball at plus 112 They've scored 382 runs while giving up 270. The pitching has been huge, and we'll have a story about that on our site soon, actually. But the hitting, you guys, did you hear what I said there? They have scored 382 runs. They've easily outscored every other team in baseball. How, you might ask? By doing the least Twinsian thing possible. They've hit a crap ton of home runs. That is a literal technical term yes they've hit a crap ton is twinsian a technical term because i love it yeah obviously (laughs) so minnesota has played 64 games and they have 125 home runs they actually trail seattle by one but the mariners 126 homers have come in 69 games the twins bomba squad as eddie rosario christened them is on pace for 316 homers on the year which is utterly absurd for this franchise the team record for homers for the twins was set in 1963 at 225 are those harm and killebrew days uh yes they're on pace to hit 150 percent of their all-time record 
And it's not even like that Harmon Killebrew era record was like close to their team average or anything. No, this team has this whole franchise has only broken 200 home runs four times in its history. Back when they were the Senators, when they moved to Minnesota, four times total have they hit more than 200 home runs. They already, not even halfway through the season, have more home runs than in 19 of their previous seasons in my lifetime. In 1991, when they last won the World Series, they hit just 140, so they're going to eclipse that fairly soon. The single-season home run record was set last season by the Yankees at 267 homers. A story in Monday's Minneapolis Star Tribune noted that the Twins could topple that record in early September if they stay on their current pace. Now, maybe it's ridiculous to think that they will stay on their current pace, but it's ridiculous to think that they have 125 home runs so far. So they have a pace. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and continue to believe that. The Twins have seven players who have hit at least 10 home runs so far this season. As a team, their launch angle is the second highest in MLB, just behind Seattle. And they have the fourth highest exit velocity behind a trio of AL East teams, the Red Sox, Yankees, and Rays. And the Twins are doing all of this with the third lowest strikeout rate in baseball, which really just, again, makes no sense to me. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the most impressive part. (laughs) Not all the home runs, the fact that they're not hitting No, I mean, they just seem to correlate so nicely, home runs and strikeouts, that to to not strike out and hit all those homers is, is pretty remarkable. Yeah. The Twins have a double-digit lead in the AL Central, and according to the 538 model, they have a 97% chance of making the playoffs, which I'm going to go ahead and round up to 100%. And, That's how these things work. Yep. And I feel pretty good about that. So this season has been such a delight for a Twins fan that I'm going to hold on to this as long as, as possible until they fall off all of their paces and break my heart again. Another thing going for them, which I was looking at this morning, They still have 56 games left in that division, and that division's a trash can. And (laughs) if you you look at what they did last, look at what the Indians did last year. They were 49 and 27 in the Central. And and pretty much, I think, except for maybe Inter, I'm not sure. I don't have it in front of me, but they were definitely below 500 against the other divisions. Last year, Minnesota was 10 and 22 against the West. This year, they're 12 and 5. So they're, they're beating the you know, better divisions. And now they get a whole bunch of White Sox and Royals and Mm -hmm. Tigers. And frankly, I don't think Cleveland's that good this year. So it's even better than it was last year. Puts a smile on my face. Yeah. If you're going to go 14 and six against both the Central and the AL East, that probably bodes pretty well for your record. I think. I think. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to I'm going to keep my fingers crossed, get all out all of my lucky charms and hold on through the season. They needed to get rid of uh, famous bum Joe Maurer. You know, once he was out of the way, that guy was just holding them back for years. Years. Jeff found a way to, to <laughs> you push shut Sarah's your mouth. button. I had, this wasn't going to be a complete love fest. I mean, I got to push back a little. I mean. The Twins have four separate Joe Maurer bobblehead days this year, so he's there. He's there in spirit. All right, well, we will leave that there, and that will do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe. Be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help others discover us. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think of the program. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.